You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, grab that and let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 together. Ephesians chapter 2. And hey, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible this morning. There are stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. Some of you take those Bibles and use them in, in worship each week, and that's fine. But if you don't own a Bible, take one of them home with you today. It's a gift. No strings attached. That's our gift for you today. And if you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We do this each week because we really do believe this is God speaking to us here and now. So we stand out of reverence and eagerness to hear from Him. This is one of the most powerful passages in the entire book of Ephesians. I'm so excited to share it with you today. Listen carefully to these words. And you were dead. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we... We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are in this series called Who Am I? And this series, among other things, is a response to this DIY approach to personal identity that has become prevalent in our culture. It's a response to what has become known as expressive individualism. That's the academic term for what we see going on around us in our world today, expressive individualism. The Australian scholar Brian Rosner captures our cultural moment. He puts it like this. Most people today believe that there is only one place to look to find yourself, and that is inward. Inward. Personal identity is a do-it-yourself project. All forms of external authority are to be rejected. And everyone, everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. This strategy of identity formation, sometimes labeled expressive individualism, is the view that you are who you feel yourself to be on the inside. And that acting in accordance with this identity constitutes living authentically. Don't we, don't we see that all around us in the world? So in other words, search within. 
Look within. And whatever you find there, whatever you feel there, that's the real you. You've got to set the real you free. Then and only then will you be your authentic self. That's our cultural moment. Now, on the contrary, what we've been learning as we've been studying this ancient letter called Ephesians, what we've been learning is to find the real you, you must not look inward, but upward. Upward. See, there's only one place where you can ask this question, who am I, and discover the true answer, and that's in the presence of the God who made you. So you can't know who you are until you know what you are. And you are not a DIY being. You have a creator. You have a designer. It's in his presence that we ask this question, who am I? And discover the true meaning of who we are, our true selves. Now this certainly is nothing original with me. This idea of looking upward rather than inward has been expounded throughout Christian history. One of the best examples is John Calvin. We talked about him last week, 16th century French reformer. In his tour de force called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin argues that knowledge of self and knowledge of God are inseparably linked. Knowledge of self and knowledge of God are inseparably linked. Here's the way he puts it in The Institutes. Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. And then and only then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. So here's the paradox. If you only look within, you'll never find yourself. If you only look within, you'll never find yourself. We must first look upward. And that's what we've been doing in the past few weeks. Last week especially, we gazed upon God's face. We came to a deeper knowledge of who God is and the blessings that He has bestowed upon us. And today, we will descend from contemplating Him to scrutinize ourselves. So you can't know who you are until you know who God is. And you can't know yourself can't know who you are now until you know who you were then. And by that I mean then before you were in Christ, before you were converted. So that's going to be our outline for today. Simple but profound. Who we were then and who we are now. Then and now. First, who we were then. Look at how Paul begins this passage in Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we have another paradox here. On the one hand, we're dead, and yet somehow we're walking. In our pre-conversion condition, this is before we were in Christ, before we were in relationship with Christ, we were dead in our sin, and yet we walked, that is, we behaved certain ways. We behaved as if we were trapped in trespasses and sins. Now this word dead, there's really not a stronger way to phrase it, right? What can a dead person do? Well, nothing. Nothing but stay dead. This was our condition before Christ. 
See, I've heard illustrations. Pastors and teachers use illustrations of salvation. They go something like this. You, the lost person, you were like the guy shipwrecked at sea. And there you were in the water and you're drowning. And you're losing your strength. And you've already gone under a couple of times. And if you go under one more time, that's the end of you. And there as you struggle, that's when Jesus reaches out his hand and says, Take my hand. Take my hand and I'll save you. (laughs) Now listen to me. What God did when he saved you, believer, it was way better than that. It was so much better than that. You were not struggling. You were not drowning. You were stone cold dead in the ocean of sin. And as we'll read in the second half of the passage, God revived you. He revived me. He brought us to life. So don't don't underestimate the work of God and don't overestimate your pre-conversion condition. Let's make sure we get the gospel right this morning. The gospel is not about asking bad people to become good. The gospel is about making dead people alive. See how much better that is? That's what God did for us. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. All we could do was sin. What is sin? Paul uses these two terms, really, they're just synonyms. He's using two terms to emphasize the fact that we were sinners. Transgression, sin, it means that we fell short of God's moral law, His standards, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Sin, as you've heard me say before, is rebellion. It's an act of defiance. As the German reformer Martin Luther put it, Sin is refusing to let God be God. See, when you and I sin, when we rebel, what we're saying is, I'm going to go my own way. I will be my own God. And that was our state. Paul continues to describe this state by showing us that, yeah, we walked, we were the living dead, we walked, we behaved in certain ways. We behaved as followers. He mentions three evil influences that had control over us in our pre-conversion condition. The world, the devil, and the flesh. See them for yourself in the text. We followed the course of this world. Now by world here, he doesn't mean God's good creation. He's not talking about the trees. By world here, he's using the term theologically to mean rebellious people organized in their rebellion against God. By world, he means our culture, structures, systems, peer pressure, ideologies of our day. All of these things that together give us this script. And the script reads like this. The life you're missing, the good life, is apart from God. What you really need is freedom from external authority. You just need to be you. Look inward. That's the world. I read a book this past week, and there was a a stat in it that was startling to me. See if this is as startling to you. In the 1970s, the average American was exposed 
to about 500 advertising images a day. Okay, in the 1970s, 500 a day. Today, the average American is exposed to about 5,000 advertising images a day. Now, you do the math there. If a picture is worth 1,000 words, how many words are we talking about here with 5,000 pictures a day? That's a lot of messaging. It's a lot of messaging. You've heard me say it before. The world is that ever-present web of influencers and influences, people and products, that web that seeks to draw us away from God. In our pre-conversion condition, we were controlled by the world. There's a second evil influence here. We followed the course of this world and we followed the prince of the power of the air or the ruler of the power of the air. This is a reference to the devil. An evil spiritual being, the first rebel, the leader of all rebellion against God and his people. It's fitting that Paul refers to the devil as the prince or the ruler of the power of the air. And he'll have much more to say about this when we get to chapter 6. So I won't spend a lot of time on it this morning. But just think about this, the power of the air. That's the perfect metaphor. It's the perfect metaphor. Because the devil and his work, his army, they are invisible, right? But they're very real. Don't convince yourself otherwise. They're very real. And in your pre-conversion condition, you were a slave to them. And so was I. We were controlled by the world. We were controlled by the devil. And Paul goes on. We also lived in the passions of our flesh. We were controlled by these sinful urges. These dark desires within us. And we carried out these desires of the body and the mind. And then look at this. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature children of wrath. Paul is making the point that every single person was affected this way. And every single part of every person was affected this way. By nature, he means that we were we were sinners to the core of our being, to the very core of our being. We could also interpret or translate this phrase by nature as by birth. That's really the point he's making here. By birth, we were children of wrath, meaning we were born sinners. Now, this is a tough one for some parents to comprehend, so let me walk you through it. It's not really tough at all if your children are over the age of about two. If they're two and older, you know they are sinners. You know they are children of wrath. There's no doubt about it. But when your first child is first born, oh, he or she just seems so perfect, right? And so innocent. And you know what? He is innocent. He is innocent in this way. In the words of St. Augustine, the ancient theologian, here's what Augustine says, that child is innocent, but only in his limbs. Only in his limbs, not in his mind, not in his nature. 
He is sinful to the core. Like all sons of Adam, like all daughters of Eve, he just doesn't yet have the muscle to manifest his sinful condition. We are sinful to the core and sinful from the crib. That's the picture here in the first part of the passage. So you see what Paul is teaching is that that we have two problems, really. Problem one is we have a bad record, a record of sin. Problem two is that we have a bad heart. We have a sinful heart. And that's the worst of the two. We have a bad record, sinful actions, precisely because we have a bad heart, a sinful heart. Luther's helpful again. Here's the way he puts it. You'll like this. Men especially. This will ring true with you. Luther says, we sin like we have a beard. Okay, your sin is like your beard. You shave, and you look clean. You look great. And then what happens the next day? The beard starts to grow right back, doesn't it? Your sin is like your beard. Or we could put it this way. You are a sinaholic. Just like an alcoholic cannot stop drinking in our pre-conversion condition, dead in our sin, followers of the world, the devil, slaves to our own sinful desires, we could not stop sinning. We were sinaholics. So what hope is there for us then? If we're dead in our sin, what can we do? Well, of course, the answer is nothing. There's nothing we can do. But in the second half of the passage, it all begins with that little phrase, but God. But God. So that's who we were. But now, let's talk about who we are now. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This second half of the passage is just teeming with the action of God. God is the one who's doing everything here. We were dead in our sin. Nothing we could do to save ourselves, to redeem ourselves. But God, rich in mercy, the God of great love, He expressed that love for us. And notice the three main verbs here. I've highlighted them for you so they're easy to see. God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now here's what's particularly interesting about all three of these verbs. They're past tense. They're past tense. Now hang on, that... That doesn't make sense at first because how have we already been raised? How in the world are we already seated in the heavenly places? What's the point Paul's making here? Well, let's think about the heavenly places here. How is it true that the believer has already been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places? I mean, are we not really here right now? Is this this a simulated reality? Hold up. Are we in the matrix? Like, what's going on around here? Now, we're actually here. At least I think we are. But in a very real sense, believers, we are also seated with Christ in the heavenly places. 
How does that work? Here, let me help you this way. The Bible can speak of death in two different ways. Earlier, when it talked about us being dead in our sin, that doesn't mean that we're literally dead, right? It means that we're metaphorically or spiritually dead. All death is separation. Physical death is separation from the land of the living. Metaphorical or spiritual death is separation from the God who gives life to all things. So the Bible can speak of death in both literal and metaphorical or spiritual terms. The same is true with resurrection. When Paul says here that we've been made alive and we've been raised with Christ, he doesn't mean that our literal resurrection has already happened. That lies ahead. We have no need to fear death because Jesus, our Savior, has already gone through death. He has conquered it and we are with him. Death used to be an executioner. Now it's merely a gardener. It's the start of something new. So literal, physical death is nothing for us to fear. But our literal, physical resurrection lies ahead. But just as the Bible can speak of death in both literal and metaphorical terms, so it can with the word resurrection. Believer, you have already been raised, metaphorically or spiritually speaking, meaning you're a new person. You're a new person with new power. See, when we think about salvation, we often think about the forgiveness of sins, as we should. That's part of the good news. We are forgiven. But salvation is more than being forgiven. It's also newness. You're a new person, and you have access to a new power. That's what Paul means when he says that we have already been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, if you've been listening throughout this, ser- this series, you'll know this is not the first time we've seen this phrase. Notice this progression in chapters 1 and 2 of the letter. In Ephesians 1.3, we were told that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's that phrase. So in some way, the blessings of heaven are available to us here and now. How does that work, Paul? He continues, Ephesians 1.20, God the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the risen and exalted Jesus, King Jesus, right now is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly places and he rules over all powers, over all forces of darkness. You remember Mega Couch from last week? Jesus is so dominant that he props his feet on all of the forces of darkness. He uses them as his footstool. But that was last week. Now in today's passage, Paul takes it a step even further. And in Ephesians 2.6, he says, God the Father has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So see the picture that he's painting. King Jesus, resurrected Jesus, world-ruling Jesus, there on his throne, feet propped on the powers of darkness, and you and I are right there with him. We are right there with him, meaning we have access to his power, his dominance, his victory is our victory. You're a new person, believer, and you have new power, so apply that power. 
Apply that power to your conflicted marriage. Apply that power to that fractured friendship. Apply that power to your anger or your grief or your greed. You are a new person resurrected and you have new power seated with him in the heavenly places. Now at the end of the passage here, Paul reminds us how it is that we've become this new person. How it is that we've gained access to this new power. Verse 8, for by grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What could we have done to save ourselves? Nothing, because we were dead. What can a dead man do? Stay dead. It's God's sovereign grace that has saved us. God made us alive and he gave us the ability to respond with faith. Faith is belief from the heart. We hear the truth of the gospel just like you're hearing it here now. And we respond with our heart. We believe. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That he died in the place for our sins. That he was raised he reigns. If you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're hearing the gospel right now. Believe it. Respond with faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It's the gift of God. And look at the final verse of our passage this morning. I want you to see this. Paul sums up who we are now in this one verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This word workmanship, in Greek, it's the word poiema. Poiema. We are God's poiema. Now you can almost hear in it our English word poem, right? And that's the point Paul's making. We are God's poem. We are God's work of literature. His work of art. His masterpiece. See, we're getting close to the point in the letter where we're going to transition into knowing others. That's the flow of this letter. Knowing God, knowing ourselves, and then knowing others. But before we leave this subject of knowing ourselves, we should recap briefly all the things that we have seen in these opening chapters about who we are in Christ. Believer, here's what we've learned. God the Father chose you. Before the foundation of the world, He chose you. God the Son purchased you with His own blood. And God the Spirit lives within you. Believer, who are you? You are God's child. You've been adopted into his family. 
You are God's treasure. As earthly kings desire gold and silver, so God desires you. And then in our passage this morning, you are God's masterpiece. You are his starry night. His Eiffel Tower. His to kill a mockingbird. Plug in the most famous work of art, the most famous piece of literature, the most famous piece of architecture. That's you. That's how valuable and how beautiful you are to God. And remember, it's a received identity, not an achieved identity. For by grace you have been saved. You did nothing to earn this, and therefore, you can do nothing to lose it. Believer, this is who you are now. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you so much for this good news of your word, of who we are. In these confusing times in which we live, in this cultural moment when we are told again and again that we must look within, help us to look up to you, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. Oh God, in your eyes, we are always valuable. We are always beautiful. We are indeed your masterpiece. Help us to rest in that. In Jesus' name.